If you haven't heard about Anchor by Spotify, it's the easiest way to make a podcast all in one place. They have tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. When hosting on Anchor, you can distribute your podcast on listening platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. It's everything you need to make a podcast. And best of all, Anchor is totally free. So download the Anchor app on Apple or Android or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M. Now back to the good part. Welcome back to the Boundary Corner Podcast. My name is Curtis Wilson. I'm Brian Siegler, buddy. We are back finally on game week. We have a game this Friday. It's actually happening. How you feeling, buddy? It's been, what, eight long months of no hooky football, and it is back this Friday, 7 p.m., ESPNU on a Friday night. I'm just so glad it's back, man. It's been so much fun this week doing the old hat of looking at data, looking at players, talking with you about shit, shooting the breeze, and knowing that it's back. Regardless what happens, the Hokies are back on the field Friday night, and, man, I can't wait. Yeah, it's going to be nice to finally have some actual stuff to argue about that's actually on the record and not – speculative right like we feel like the (laughs) between the timeline between the chats between you know buddies at work things like that like we've been talking speculatively about what these hoagies can do we're about to finally have some real stuff to talk about and it was kind of good to kind of get back into that flow of watching the tape breaking it down seeing what the opponents are all about looking at the data, see if we can, you know, peel the onion back a little bit on the who the Monarchs are and how the Hokies can go about, you know, putting them down. Absolutely. And that's the fun part. And this is the fun part of our season from now until December because the content writes itself. We have to do the research. We have to figure out, you know, the data points, where they're not good, where they're bad, or where we're speculating they're good and bad. Because right now, all we have to look at is the 2021 season, which we were peeling back, Brian looking at tape, looking at data, and then going into this. But before we get deep in that tonight, because know the enemy is coming up in a little while here, we do have Hokies news and notes. And Brian, when, when this tweet dropped last week, we had gotten the wins. We had gotten the wins that it was going to happen. We felt it. And it's coming. It was the return of the lunch pail to Virginia check. Um, that tweet that went out with JC and JGW and Xavier and Pearson all speaking to what it meant to them. And then seeing some of the highlights of those guys playing, like it just, it just got you this warm, fuzzy feeling inside. At least it did me. 
Yeah, I was right there with you, man. Um, it feels like a – I mean, we talk about the pry hire has been a culture hire, a big-time culture hire, and there's no bigger emblem of the Virginia Tech culture than the lunch pail and the lunch pail defense. Correct. Bringing that back was a no-brainer. Pry said it was a no-brainer, and it's something that's been in the works since he was hired. I'm glad they kind of saved it, kept it, kept it under wraps for as long as they could and unveiled it when they did. It was a good way to kind of roll into the season with a little bit of extra hype, a little bit of extra juice. Juice. And and I'm ex- and I'm excited about what that means for this defense. I mean, you know, we can talk about it all all we want to about, you know, it's it's just a lunch pail, but I think it's what it stands for and what that can do in terms of motivation for your play and motivation for your work ethic and things like that. When you have that type of tradition, people take it seriously and that can elevate their work, that can elevate their play. It is a mentality. Yeah. It is a mentality. And I know here in Pride today speak at the presser about it's, a, it's always been a thing for the defense. But I think if we look in the history of Virginia Tech, the lunch pail is a mentality for the whole team. It was a, for, for the, you know, offense back as we were coming up when we used to just road great people and put people into misery or hit them with a high fly play after you've beaten them down or the yep. block punts or Beamer ball. So it was, it's that mentality across the whole team. And if you can remember like one of the old traditions where when you went on the field or when you went to someone else's place and won, you took the lunch pail to the middle of the field. You dug out a big chuck of it. You threw it in there because you claimed their turf. Yep. That mentality is something I love. Something else I loved, and I think having guys on the staff, two guys that were part when that lunch pail first appeared 27 years ago in 1995. And, again, it gets you kind of emotional and think about it, was when Pearson Prelude, one of the all-time hooky greats, comes in, gets the lunch pail, talks about it, and presents it to Jamari Connor to be the holder for this year. Like that, I, that if if you didn't have some onions watching that, I, I, it's tough to say if you're a Virginia Tech fan if you know what Pearson was to the program and how big of an impact he had. Yep. Yeah, it's a big deal, and I know you know we saw people talk about on the timeline that were on that offensive side too, like you were talking about. Uh, you know, Dwight was saying, you know. It was a mentality that we all had, um, even though it wasn't, you know, a lunch pail offense, it was lunch pail defense. We had that mentality, but we also knew that, you know, as an offense, you know, that lunch pail defense could pick us up yep. when, when things weren't weren't going quite the way we want to. And I think that mentality, knowing that that defense has, has that mentality for you, that can help the offensive mentality as well. It's like, okay, well, we don't got to get all of them. We just got to get the ones that count. Absolutely, absolutely. So, big thing, big motivational, kind of done at a really good point in time as they get into that game week, sort of the unveiling of that and seeing everybody speak to it um, and knowing the history behind it. All right, let's flip over real quick, couple injury notes. Benji Gosnell out for the season. Matt Johnson out for the season. Benji doesn't really hurt. Sucks he tore his, his other – Sucks. It looks like it could potentially be another torn ACL. Um, you know, usually you hear one go. A lot of times that other one blows out worse than Achilles. Normally you hear that. Also, the walk on Matt Johnson out here from deep run. Price said it. 
guy we expect to be a special teams contributor. Out for the season as well, not specified. Benji's wasn't specified either. I'm speculating either ACL or Achilles because usually when you hear one go and you hear injury and you hear season ending, it's usually the other or the Achilles blew out. Yeah, I mean, it happens oftentimes because, you know, you're compensating for the one and the next thing you know, the other one goes. Um, you know, thankfully, it, it's not the same one. Um, well, totally and, and, and generally, and generally, uh, you know, once you have the, those ACLs, generally, once they're back, they're they're a little more solid than they were the first go round. So yeah. uh, let's hope that's the case for him. Speedy recovery to both of those gentlemen. Um, but again, two guys that were going to be minimal to sub-minimal contributors for the 2022 yeah. season. Probably hurts more with Johnson than anything. Probably having a guy like him out there, a vet on a special teams unit, probably more than Gosnell, who may have found the red shirt regardless this year. All right. Something else kind of talked about last week that caught my eye. I'm a nerd like that was Brent Pry discussing what the game day ops are going to look like on the defensive side of the ball and giving a little hints to the offensive side of the ball. Defensively, he said straight up along with himself, obviously Chris Marv on the field, Derek Jones on the field, JC on the field. Yep. Any, any shock seeing that? I mean, no, you got, you got one guy at each level of the, the defense out there. So that just makes sense. All right. That's a, that's a guy on the field that can talk specifically to each level of the defense, uh, get them where they need to be. And then also, obviously I feel like defensive coordinators have a better feel for the game when they're calling it from the sidelines. Yeah. That's a big thing. Even though we know prize going to be calling it most of the time, I'm sure there's going to be input with Marv there. Um, I think having a guy like JC on the sidelines, is big because JC is a fire guy, you know, kind of like Tap was before, you know, kind of like Charlie Wiles. You saw them get animated on the sidelines. They punch things. They break things. Yep. Hopefully JC doesn't break his hand at any point in time this year. That is what it is. Obviously, if those three guys are on the field, it's leaving Pearson Prelude and Sean Quinn up in the box. And I think you just kind of said it. Pearson on the back end with Quinn coaching the nickel and the Sams closer to the line of scrimmage, right? Yep. That's exactly it. And I think also when you look at it, you're talking about two very cerebral and experienced um, folks in the booth in terms of breaking down um, what's happening. You got, I mean, Pearson, obviously, with with his pedigree. And then you talk about Quinn, a guy that has been, you know, a head coach at at another level, um, a guy that's been defensive coordinator at another level. So he's a guy that can diagnose and get that information down to the sidelines um, when he sees something different than what they see from that that position. Yeah. So that's the way it'll look. So as you're kind of perusing the sidelines, notice you'll notice those three guys. Maybe they shape Pearson up in the box. I almost want to make a bet that they will show Pearson in the box just because he played and it's his first year coaching. All right, offensive game day, we didn't get as much on it, but we kind of got that they'd been toying around whether it be Brad Glenn or Tyler Bowen in the box. And kind of the way Pry came off was Tyler was going to be in the box, not a shock with an offensive coordinator, and Glenn was going to be on the field potentially. He didn't really talk to anyone else. 
But let's just kind of do some speculation. If Bowen's in the box and Glenn's on the field, let's start with Joe Rudolph. Where's Joe Rudolph? Boxer field. Um, I'd say he is on the field. Okay. Now, from your playing experience, I'm assuming that with an offensive line coach, they need to be on the field because of the amount of people they need to talk with. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I've never had a offensive line coach that was in the booth. Um, in my in my all all my years of, of, of playing, I never had an offensive line coach that was in the booth. So okay. my assumption is that he will be there, unless there's obviously you know a a backup line coach might be up there, but but never never, never the primary position coach. All right. Um, my other thought is that Fontel Mines will also be on the field. Okay. Because. Because if you've got, I'll say this: you've got a, you've got Bowen up there. Mines is kind of the guy on the field that can work with the tight ends and the wide receivers. So that's my thought there. All right. Well, do you think Holtz up in the box, or do you think it's only going to be Tyler Bowen with some analysts in the box? Because obviously Holtz is a special teams coordinator. I'm thinking. I'm thinking it's going to be Bowen with some of the other assistant position coaches and some analysts. That that's my feel. Just because of of what Holt does from a special teams coordinator, you want that guy on the field. Okay, that's going to be interesting to see. Uh, it'll be interesting to see who is on the field, and obviously who's up in the box. Hopefully, we get some more info on that. Um, I would also be interested because we do have more staffers who can be in the box this year, especially, you know, Ryan Chris, right? Yeah. Ryan Chris getting a lot of pub from Brent Pride talking about him. Is he that second set of eyes for Tyler Bowen in the box where you can have four of the offensive coaches down on the field, including Holt, who's a special team coordinator? So that'll be really interesting. Well, Brian, we were hoping, we were hoping, we were hoping, and it did happen the day before we went live. The depth chart was released. Well, the unofficial depth chart. And obviously, we've got a few things we want to talk to on that tonight. And let's talk about first the one that caught your eye that you mentioned was uh, the wide receiver room. Yeah, that was that was an interesting one, wasn't it? Um, when yeah. we uh, when we were looking at it, we were like, okay, well, that's a little different because we talked the last you know few weeks. We said, all right, so three guys pretty much locks in terms of. Yep. Amount of amount of reps, playing time, snaps that they will get in a given game. Um, what we didn't know is who that four and five guy were going to be. Um, we we now know that the four's not a shock. Yeah, the God, four's not got, a shock. We got Gosnell in there at the at the four. It is the five that is the pretty big. Uh, I, I mean, I, I'll say it. Big shock, William. Kakavitsis. 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 Walk on wide receiver from Charlotte, 6'1, 194 pounds. Definitely uh, you know, Providence High School down there. Red shirt junior. Um, his name had gotten mentioned, though. It had gotten mentioned in the last few weeks about how Coach was impressed with him. Um, you know. There's not much. He redshirted. He played a he played a few games in 2020 on special teams. Um, 
don't have any info if he played last year. I'm assuming if he's a redshirt junior, he played last year as well. Uh, but it's one of those shockers because the fifth guy, we were, you know, Christian Moss, Jalen Jones, a plethora of other players. So it's kind of shocking that walk-on Big Willie gets that fifth receiver spot. And you know what? Good on that kid. Good on that kid for probably busting his ass, giving 110% every day to where if other potentially more talented players weren't taking it and he's busting his ass, yeah, there you go. I would. I, I hope that first play of the game he's on the field. I'll say this. So, you know, we, we see him there. We're a little shocked that uh... – that we see his name there, but what we're also not seeing from a depth chart just because of how it's structured is what those hybrid players are doing within certain formations, whether it's mm-hmm. the three wide sets or, or what have you, because I imagine that we're going to see a whole lot of Connor Blumrick split out wide. I imagine that there's going to be sets and formations where we see chance black split out yeah. wide. Keyshawn so, King. Yeah, I don't think this is necessarily, you know, he, he might be fifth in terms of, you know, he's got a WR next to his name uh, okay. right now, but that's not necessarily saying he's going to be the fifth option at the wide receiver position. Well, well uh, we look because, at Because of, of, of how much we have that position flexibility with some of the other players in that offense. Well, especially when we look at tight end and it's literally or, 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 which tells me, Nick's going to be on the field a lot. Drake's going to be on the field a lot. Connor's going to be on the field a lot. Yeah, I mean, because, Drake, has, Drake has great athleticism. He can split out. He can do a lot of things in the short game. With obviously, Connor. Connor's got some some good speed. Um, sounds like his route running and hands are coming along as well. So, you know, we'll, we'll see him a lot, I feel like. And, you know, they're going to even do some flexible things with Gallo. So, this is not going to be and, – and I haven't even mentioned – my, my favorite player, Daquan Wright, yet. He's not on um, the depth chart, Brian. What he's not on the depth chart yet. <laughs> he's not on the depth chart yet. Um, I think what, what Brian is trying to say is when you put the wide receiver room on a depth chart, it actually should go wide receiver, and then it should encompass tight end, and it should encompass running back a little bit. Is our wide receiver? Well, it, when you're talking about the slot position, you're probably talking about a true slot, but then you're also talking about two or three hybrid players that are going to be in there as well. And then you probably are going to see at some point, and we saw it in the spring game, Jaden and Dwayne kicking out, playing Y, playing X, because they did show that position flexibility. Um, so, and that's something we haven't seen a lot of. You know, shout out David Cunningham and all the reporters down there giving us insight. We never saw a lot of those periods where they were truly running sets, which you were like antsy, like get me what they're running sets. Let me see who's on the field. We never saw it. Obviously, that'll be unveiled Friday night. All right. Yep. Let's flip it to the bread and butter, man, the offensive line. Um, so, Bob Schick and Daniel Militech on the on the right side? Um, I think that's okay. – I, I, I wouldn't say that's necessarily shocking, but that's disturbing. But let me break it down a little bit further than that because I'm okay. not as concerned as I think some people would be because when you're talking about a two-deep on the offensive line, you're not really talking about – a two a full two line most of these guys are not going to be playing it's going to be a seven to eight man rotation you're going to get your starters and then you're going to have you know your Braylon Moore that's going to be a swing guard 
probably Xavier Chaplin that's going to be a swing tackle, and then you've got Jack Hollyfield at center. Those are going to be the eight guys that are going to see primary reps at the position, barring significant injury. Now, if we do have significant injury, it gets a little scary. But we still have a traditional eight-man rotation that most offensive line coaches are comfortable with. I don't think there's a big flaw in any of those first seven or eight guys. After that, it's a very steep drop-off. All right. Do you think Xavier is ready to play in the first month? Or is he one of those guys, he's like the seven and a quarter, and it's that first month that Brent Pry keeps talking about. He's like, these guys are getting better in the season and where we hope we don't have to see him until after after four, three or four games. I mean, you want to get him some reps at least at Wofford. Um, hopefully Saturday. And night. hopefully Saturday at ODU. Or Friday night, it, yeah, it, Friday. Yeah, at least, yeah, Friday night. At least, at least at Wofford, though, you want to get him some significant reps. But then you probably don't want to put him in there unless you absolutely have to after that. Yeah. Um, because you, you probably want to say, if we can redshirt him, great. If we can't, that's fine, too, because he's ready to play. Um, so... You know, you're, you're holding him back as much as you can. You get him maybe one or two games early in the season, and then unless you absolutely have to get him reps, you kind of hold him back. Yeah, absolutely. Because what the hope is is you get into that November part of the schedule and you decide which two games there yep. that you want him to play in to get more reps to get ready for next year to probably be the front runner for left tackle. He's the left tackle in waiting for sure. Yeah. He's the left tackle in waiting. He's the guy that's going to relieve Silas of his duties at the end of the season. There we go. All right. Defensive end, obviously with the news today that CJ McCray is banged up, they are potentially seeing if he will make the trip down to Norfolk for Friday night. But, and, and we heard that and it's like, okay, and I think, Brian, what you got kind of excited is when you see three young guys on that 2D. Yeah, that was the big thing for me. Um, you know, seeing, you know, McDonald was the one that jumped off in terms of not expecting him to be at that point. Um, so seeing him there is interesting. Uh, but especially Burgos and uh, and Moiston, the, the true freshman in there, um, you know, you got Burgos kind of in that that quasi two to three, three, three deep at one end. You got Moisten in there. And I think, you know, once you get McCray back, hopefully it's this week, I, I think that's one of those things where he's he's banged up. Apparently he practiced today. Um, yeah. So he's not – it's not a significant injury, uh, but it might be one of those – he's a guy we're going to need a month from now. Let's not rush him back against ODU. Well, it's it's a guy you feel like you're going to need more next week potentially than this week. Absolutely, Absolutely. you know, it's and it's one of those things where if if we're controlling this game and CJ doesn't need to play great, less physical toll on his body, whatever part of the body is injured to get him healthy and be a full go for Boston College, and I think that's the issue. But I think seeing those young guys, you're starting to see, you know some of the older guys who have been here for a few years, no disrespect to them, like Eli Adams are kind of getting in the backseat. Could they still see potential time? Yes, it's it's the line. You know, the bodies that aren't named there are still going to get some play time. So don't – I'm not going to be shocked about that. Yeah, now, I'm kind of happy. I'll say this. I'm, I'm kind of happy I'm not seeing Eli Adams in there, and that's no knock on 
him personally, but based on his size and, and what he brings, his pass rush was never, and his speed was never elite enough to justify what we gave up in his physical size. He would get pushed around. He, he, unless he was beating you around the edge with his speed, he didn't really bring a whole lot to the table. Um, solid tackler, but overall, just not not a well-rounded player enough to have out there for more than a spot spot snap here or there. Um, so seeing these guys, these younger guys, come up making plays and uh, and challenging some of those veterans for these rotational spots on the defensive line, I think, is a big thing. Yep. Now, what kind of was a shocker to me was a linebacker. And no, not Mike or Sam. Those are exactly probably like we expected to see them. But when we take a look at the will, it's Jaden Keller or Jaden McDonald or Alan Tisdale. The triple or again, and at a position unlike tight end where it's very unlikely all three are going to ever be on the field at the same time. And I look at this, and I just think I think Jaden Keller is coming on like a freaking freight train to take that spot. Yeah, I mean, it looks like Keller is. I mean, it's going to be his. I think by the end of the season, like full stop. If it if it isn't, you know, already, um, he's obviously one A right now. Um, he's the guy that's going to be on the field first. But the interesting thing that I saw in there, and especially since we didn't see a guy like Dean Ferguson's name in here, seeing Jaden McDonald kind of ahead of Alan Tisdale. And we knew that Tisdale has been running with the threes during some of these scrimmage sessions in practice, but we didn't know if that was necessarily indicative of what the depth chart would look like. If that's just, you know, something that he's been doing. Um, But apparently he was wearing a scout team Jersey one day. And like, so this is, this is an interesting situation, but I said it last week. You know, this can only be an elevation of play, right? Because when we when we talk about Alan Tisdale's play, it's always been inconsistent. He yeah. had a, a breakout year in 19, and it's kind of been steadily, eh. Meddling. He's been meddling. And we know he had things going on in his life, birth of a child and stuff like that. And that, trust me, that can that can get you from chasing your goals to sort of level setting and then normally – attempted to attack those goals again. So it's just interesting to see that. But everything from Keller, it's just he's getting the size. I mean, he's 6'3 already. He's already up in the 225-pound range. And he, if you can remember, he was a recruited as a receiver, if I don't recall, right? I believe so. Or he was an athlete. So this guy has some nasty, nasty athleticism that if you're talking about you know, next year, is he the Mike? Is potentially Kalai Lawson, who was seen at practice today, which is good, which is good. Same way maybe he's getting closer to going and that little nick he had is gone. I hope so, at least for the rest of the season. But if if Keller is that guy, I mean, athletically in the linebacking core, we're going to go from where we've been solid to back to – I think Tremaine, I think Xavier, I think some of those other guys like that, which is a big step in the right direction in this era of college football. Yeah, and uh, I, I just checked. So he was recruited as a linebacker, but he came in at 202. 
Oh wow! So he's uh, so he's he's put on twenty one pounds in in you know one and a half seasons here. Um, I think that's pretty big for him. I think that's gonna and he's only gonna get better going forward, um, especially with guys like Marv and Pry, um, you know, working with him so heavily. So uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what this kid can do long term for sure. Awesome. Well, last piece I want to take a look at here is the cornerback room. Um, and Breon Murray and, and Armani Chapman at the OR. Um, I, I'm not shocked to see this because I think you've been mentioning it over and over again about situation, right? There are some things Armani's the better overall, but there are some things that Breon Murray does in certain situations where he does benefit. So I think that's big. I think it's I also think it's awesome to see that DJ Harvey is holding down the two slot behind Dorian Strong. Yeah, that's big. Um, I, I like Harvey. I like that he's, you know, we, I, from all accounts is going to be the primary nickel back when we go into that, um, that personnel group. So um, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with the Armani Chapman, Breon Murray uh, combo there. You know, we, I've mentioned it before. Murray does pretty well when he can drive on a route. He doesn't do great turning and running, especially with kind of the the guys that have that combination of speed and and strength and size. Um, you know, he's five ten, he's one ninety, he's not Armani Chapman. He's got who's got an inch on him and almost twenty pounds. Um, Armani can you know fight with those receivers at the line of Press. scrimmage a little bit more. And, and still make up some ground there. So th- there's a little bit of difference there between those two. And I think Murray's lack of size, he struggles against guys. We saw in the spring game with Caleb Smith, he struggles with that type of player, a player with good size, good strength, and above average speed. So th- there's probably going to be situations where, where Murray's out there for stretches. Um, and depending on how he's matched up and who he's matched up again, that could be good or bad for us. I like Chapman overall better, though. Chapman is is a more rounded player. There aren't the gaps when he gets against certain uh, competition. There has been some areas where, you know, the the mental gaps have been there, where where he hasn't been in the right place in terms of, um, you know, busted coverages and things like that. But if he can clean that stuff up, I think he's going to be all right there. Absolutely. So if you guys haven't checked it out there, uh, I'm always going to push David Cunningham has it out there. I think you wrote a little article for tech sideline today discussing what the depth chart looks like. Um, take a look at it. It's going to be interesting to see what the product as uh, one of our um, listeners here tonight, Matt Jones has said, can't wait to see the on the field product. And I think that's what we're all waiting for now. This change in culture, this change in some philosophies, some upgrades at certain positions. And now that it's here, it's here. So this is what we're going to do. We are going to take a quick pause from our digital partners, and we are going to get into Know the Enemy for the ODU Monarchs. As we take a quick break, we'd like to tell you about getting your free website report from our digital partner, Grassroots Digital Marketing Studio. They'll tell you how your website ranks on Google, on-site SEO, and social media. No commitment to buy anything. You can get your free report by visiting grassrootsdigitalstudio.com forward slash free dash website dash report. Now back to the episode. 
All right, Brian. So let's flip it here. Let's get to know the enemy, the ODU Monarchs. And let's start on the offensive side of the ball. And let's talk about their quarterback, Hayden Wolf, a 6'5", 235-pound, came out in 2019 as a three-star from Venice, Florida. Um, and then, you know, last year had a solid season, started 10 games, 63% completion percentage, a little over 1,900 yards, a little over seven and a half per attempt, 10 touchdowns, seven interceptions. You got to look at the tape. What's the tape telling you about this guy? Yeah, I mean, Hayden Wolf is a, a pretty good-looking uh, quarterback. He he does a good job of working through his progressions. Um, the routes he likes to throw the best, he, he throws a good seam, good fade, um, kind of those interme- intermediate routes just inside the hash, just outside the hash. Um, he's sometimes inaccurate with those intermediate routes, especially over the middle, and I'm not talking about the – the, the fades or the scenes, but more of the like digs, um, crossers, things of that nature. He'll miss um, sometimes at least interceptions, sometimes at least overthrows. Um, his eyes can be affected by the rush like most quarterbacks, but it's especially true for a guy like him because he is a true pocket quarterback. He is not a quarterback that's going to move around a lot. He's not a quarterback that is going to take off a lot. Uh, he is a guy that's going to sit in the pocket, waiting for it to come open, go through his progressions, and deliver it. Uh, so if we can get pressure on him early in the snap count, that's going to improve our odds of getting off the field. Yeah, and you mentioned about not a true rushing quarterback. I mean, the data shows it. He only attempted to run 14 times in 10 games last year. And with when you accrued that with also the times he was sacked, he was negative 92 yards rushing the ball. So obviously the threat's not there at all. But I know something you've been mentioning, Brian, looking at this offense is talking about um, the mesh and what we should be doing with that concerning um, uh, Hayden Wolf. Yeah, I mean, just he's a statue back there. He's not going to take off and run. There's no re- reason to respect the mesh point for the quarterback run because he's just not going to do it. It's not there. Uh, attack the running back. Uh, make sure your backer is prepared because they do have some RPO-type elements in this offense, but there's no reason to respect the quarterback taking off uh, and trying to get a first down. All right. Well, let's flip it and let's talk about a couple of his favorite weapons here tonight. And and the first one is a legitimately a very large human being. Zach Kuntz, the tight end, six foot eight, 245 pounds. When he came out in 2018, he was a four-star out of Camp Hill, PA. He was a top 150 player, a top five tight end in the country. He originally committed to Penn State. So Brent Prime mentioned it today. Hey, I was one of the guys who recruited Zach. know a lot about him, which is a good thing in my opinion. He did leave Penn State in 2021 through the portal. And uh, Brian – Let's talk about this guy and like what he is and is is he their best player on the field in general? Yeah, I mean, I I would say he is their biggest target in that offense. Um, okay, in terms of volume, um, he's going to be the guy that's going to get the heaviest targets in the passing game. Uh, that doesn't mean he's going to rack up the most yards or anything like that, but he is the guy that is going to be targeted the most in the offense. Uh, he's a big physical tight end. You already talked about that. He's got that NFL size and athleticism 
um, that you would see in a you know top 150 power five recruited tight end. Um, and he is their primary red zone threat as well. So when they get in the red zone, they will look for him uh, to, to get in the end zone. Uh, but he's definitely a guy that we've got to check constantly because they will hit him up the seam. Uh, they will hit him um, outside of the hashes occasionally. So they'll, they'll line him up in different places, but he's still that kind of prototypical style uh, tight end that you'll see in the NFL. Let me ask this before I get into some of his stats from last year. What do you think we're going to do coverage-wise? Is this going to be a bracket-type coverage, or do you think you know one of our safeties or linebackers who are significantly athletic, even though they're going to give up size, are going to hang with him? Like, what do you think the plan is to counter this guy? Uh, I think they're going to put their their best coverage backer safety against him fairly significantly and hope that we can get enough pressure with the blitz and pressure with the defensive line to where he can't cause us too much trouble. Don't necessarily think we're going to bracket him. Um, Yeah, I, I think at that point that takes away some of what Marv's and uh and prize defense is about um I, th- I think they're hoping they can put enough pressure on wolf to where he can't deliver those passes on time and in the right location for Koontz to hurt us too bad yeah and for Koontz last year 73 reception 692 yards nine and a half per reception with five touchdowns and this really was his first time playing a full season he had only played into a couple games at penn state in 18 and 19 did not play any in 20. So, you know, he's obviously coming off a good year. He's obviously got some physical attributes. But luckily, and it's one of those weird things, luckily you say somebody that knows him and that was in the building with him for three years is now coaching on the other side of the ball against him. So if there's anyone that potentially knows what's going to be the best way to handle him, I would put that trust in Brent Pry. All right, so after Kuntz, Probably their next biggest weapon is Ali Jennings, wide receiver, six foot two, 196 pounds, a three star from Highland Springs High School that was never offered by Virginia Tech when he came out. I will go ahead and make that note. He did did originally commit to West Virginia um, back in 2019, and he came to ODU from the portal in 2021 where he kind of had a breakout season. And Brian, I know you got to see some really good things on his tape. Yeah. He's a very solid route runner. Um, He's got great quickness, especially in the intermediate passing game. Um, He does have a drop every now and then nothing to really write home about, but you know, they do happen, Uh, but he is good with catches in traffic. Um, There's a lot of times where he's targeted over the middle uh, up the seam where he can make that tough tough catch along the sideline, make a tough catch. And he's really big uh, run after the catch guy. So when he, when he gets the ball in his hands, he can do some, some pretty filthy things down the field. Um, definitely an NFL caliber type receiver. Um, insane that we did not offer this kid out of Highland Springs. What the fuck were we thinking? Uh, but we just talked about the only two players on their team that I think could potentially be, starters for us all right good deal i think when i when, when when you've been kind of explaining him to me seeing some of his data from last year looking at a little bit of you know, me looking at highlight films not looking at tape like you i, I can't do that i don't know what I'm looking at. 
I think we're going to see early with this game is with the new, you know, with the new stuff on defense. This he's like a key guy. If you're telling me that we're tackling him at the spot he catches the ball, and he's not able to get that rack. Then some of this stuff is going to be very interesting. And Lavar Cooper, you know, here from Facebook saying that he thinks they're going to try to test our corners by going downfield. I I think they might, but I also think I don't think Brent Pry is going to let them do that at all. I mean, I think we're going to see a lot of heavy blitzing. I th- like I said, I think they're going to put the pressure on Wolf to make a quick decision early in the snap count and get the ball out of his hands. I don't know if this offense is designed for that. They like the intermediate stuff. Um, some of that takes a little time to develop. We're going to have opportunities to get sacks. We've got to get home. We've got to finish it. And we got to make sure that we're moving – Wolf off his spot where he's either throwing off balance or he's having to throw on the run because that's not his bread and butter. He likes to sit back there in the pocket and, and diagnose and deliver. All right, so that's going to be a key there. And, and with Ollie Jennings last year, I mean, he went over 1,000 yards in 13 games, 62 receptions, 1,066, over 17 yards of reception. I think right there you see the yeah, the rack. Um, and the yak with only five touchdowns. So again, I want to see how our tackling, especially on the perimeter, will definitely he will definitely be a challenge to our cornerbacks and our safeties, along with the other parts of the defense. All right, Brian. Before we get into their best player, give me just high level overview of what you see from this offensive line. They're average. They're they're, they're very average. Um, and I'd say they're. They're decently balanced, but they are a little heavier on pass pro than on the run. They're not going to bowl you away. They do have a couple guys on that line that um, do do a pretty good job in the run game, one we're about to talk about uh, here in a moment. Um, But they got behind the down and distance a lot last year, and a lot of the rushing yards they got were in some garbage time situations last year. Okay. uh, it, it'll be interesting to see, you know, what that looks like this year, um, if that offensive line has improved at all. But uh, decent, but nothing to write home about. Got it. And obviously, I think you know we've been talking about probably the best player who is getting some All Conference accolades preseason, and Nick Saldaveri, the right tackle, six six three sixteen. He was originally a two star back in twenty eighteen from Monroe, North Carolina. Obviously, he's getting all the conference honors. Is he their best offensive lineman? Yeah, uh, far and away their best offensive lineman. Definitely the most balanced offensive lineman in terms of what he can do in pass pro and what he does in the running game. Um, I'd say probably their best run blocker on the team, uh, which you don't always see from a right tackle position. And you know his pass pro is is as good as anybody else on that team as well. So. Uh, good balance. He's not an elite player, but there's really no weak area of his game that, that we can really attack consistently. No, I haven't seen much on this, but are they projecting him to stay at right side? I don't know for sure. I did not see a scouting report um, that, that showed that, so I don't know if he's switching over to the left side. Yeah, I'm going to effort that real quick while we take a look at the next guy here. And this is the last piece of the offense we're going to look at here, and his name is Blake Watson. 
Laffy, if you from Halifax County listening to this, since we <laughs> high school, the guy named Blake Watson lives in Roanoke now. Um, Blake Watson, five foot nine, 195 pounds, originally recruited as a wide receiver out of high school. He was from Green Hope down in Cary, North Carolina, was a two star back in 2018. And you know, Brian. I see the stat line, and I mean, I hope one of our guys can do this this year. I mean, eleven hundred and twelve yards, over five a carry, eight touchdowns—not much of a receiving game, but I mean, still something. What did what did his tape show, and why didn't he jump out to you um, as much as the other two offensive guys did? So the big thing is that he's not quite the game breaker um, that the other two are. Um, you know, we see. You know, a guy like Koontz, he's really hard to match up against. He's a guy that can hurt you in the middle of the field, hurt you in the red zone. You can see a guy like Ali Jennings that can, you know, take a, a quick route, take it to the house, beat you in that intermediate game. Um, you know, Watson is kind of a, a bread and butter. He's, he's used more of a, as a stick mover. He's got pretty good vision, um, but, you know, you don't really see him uh, breaking off huge runs consistently. Um, he does have a burst when he gets to the second level though. Um, so you, we got to make sure that we're, you know, at him at the point of attack, get him down before he breaks past that second level. Um, so you got to wrap up and get him to the ground. He'll bite you, but he's got that kind of one cut style, um, one cutting go. So we definitely need to make sure when we get our hands on him, we get him to the ground, but, um, he, he, he's not the, a game breaker type player, but he is a guy that will get, 15 to 20 carries a game and probably go for about a hundred yards on those. Makes sense with the stat lines and everything. So again, it's that key. Uh, and I hope the stuff that's been biting us in the ass the last few years where we have running backs dead to rights for that three or four yard loss begins to matriculate into keeping it at three to four yard losses versus letting them break the tackle, getting back to the line of scrimmage. And in some cases gaining positive yards, because I think for me as a fan, um, that is one of the most frustrating things when you know you can put a team in a bad situation and you're just letting it slip with, you know, piss poor fundamentals in the game yeah. of football. Absolutely. All right, Brian, let's just kind of take a high level look now at the offense. Um, obviously, it's Ricky Ronnie's offense. The guy from Georgia Tech came in, yes, but they essentially you can say they're from the same type tree. Now, I think. The offensive line coach you called the Tulsa game, I, his name is slipping me right now. I didn't document that. Um, is going to be the play caller. But, you know, what are we seeing and what do you expect to see Friday night from this ODU offense? Uh, in terms of play calling, it's going to be interesting, right? Because you got a, yes. you got a brand new play caller, um, brand new coordinator. Um, you know, three weeks before the season starts, ODU loses their quarterback's coach and offensive coordinator. Uh, so for about a week, looks like Ricky Ronnie was probably pulling triple duty at practice. Oh, yeah. Uh, until they worked out what that succession line was going to look like. Um, but, I mean, this is that, you know, multiple smash mouth spread RPO uh, is the emphasis. They will go multiple, but it's mostly going to be smash mouth spread with RPO concepts in there. Um like I've said with uh, with the intermediate, that's their bread and butter, especially on early downs when you know, the defense isn't expecting it. Uh, they lean heavily on their primary targets, Jennings, Koontz, to get open early in the snap. 
Um, Wolf does do a good job of going through his progressions, but usually when he does, he's not, that's, that, that's not going to be a big yard yard getter. That's going to be something that, you know, helps them stay ahead of the sticks. It's not something that where they're, he's, he's, he's going through second and third progressions and then getting a 20 or 30 yard gain out of it. It's something where it's, it's more of a, he's good at, all right, where's my primary? Where's my secondary? Where's my check down? He gets to a check down. They get three or four yards. Um, and the, if they're going to beat you with those intermediate plays, they're going to do it early in the snap. And they have to do that because of the the limitations they have at quarterback in terms of athleticism. Um, the other thing that, and this is going to be a theme when we get to the defense as well, penalties, sacks, drops will kill effective drives for this offense routinely, especially when they're against kind of evenly matched or better competition, which in this case would qualify as that. Um so, you know, look look for them to to kind of shoot themselves in a foot in the foot often when they start getting some of those effective drives that end up being drive killers. Absolutely. And y'all are gonna see as we get into the Hokies keys later about this penalties. When I did the research, it was like Jesus Christ, what an undisciplined team. But before we get there, here's a teaser. We're gonna look at the defensive side of the ball. Yeah. I I've gotten better at teasers over the years. But let's talk about guy the guy in the middle, um, Ryan Henry, the linebacker, a JUCO, 6'2", 225, 2019 three-star. He went to ASA JUCO. He was originally from Miami Southridge, and he actually was originally a safety product. Um, what do you see from Ryan Henry on the tape, Ryan? Uh, he's kind of above average with his coverage skills, but he's not as great against the run. Um, but the big thing that helps him out is that he is a sure tackler. Um, but they don't really use him very much as a blitzer or a pass rusher. He's primarily the guy that's going to be back in coverage, coming up when, when there's a run, making a play there. He's not someone that they send and um, get a lot of tackles for loss, sacks, things of that nature. Um, he's not that type of disruptor. So he essentially truly is playing like a – they are treating him as a safety at linebacker then versus converting to linebacker where he obviously has a build to have the traits but maybe hasn't picked up that mental portion of the game. That – I mean, some of it is scheme as well. Um, the, the way okay. they deploy him um, is definitely more on the, the coverage style. Um, that's just what he does better, um, and I think they kind of lean on that. Got it, got it. All right, well, let's look at one of the guys on the back end here, and that's Arturian Johnson, the 5'11", 196-pound safety. Also another JUCO. He was from Gulf Coast Community College, originally grew up in Wiggins, Mississippi. Um, what do you think, Arturian? Uh, in my opinion, he's the best player on their defense, um, and it's probably not that close. Um, the argument could be made for the next guy we're going to talk about, but – uh, to me, Arturian Johnson is the best player on that defense. Uh, he cleans up a lot of the inconsistencies, both in the passing game and the rushing game, just with his play. Um, very good tackler, uh, above average in coverage. Um, he's the guy that's getting everybody where they need to be in that secondary. Um, and, again, cerebrally, he's definitely the head and shoulders above the rest of the secondary, in my opinion. Yeah, and, and his stat lines from last year looked, you know, really good. I'm assuming he's probably more of a safety 
in the box. I mean, 92 combined tackles. He had three and a half tackles for loss. He had two picks, six pass deflections. So where did you see him lined up? Was he playing more of a free coming down, or is he playing more, you know, that strong rover type position? A uh, little more of the rover. Um, he's definitely playing in the box a little bit more. And he's a guy that, again, would take on the running back, come up and, and making plays in the running game. Um, so, like I said, overall, I, I think his, he's, he's the guy that you want to make sure you're accounting for uh, as an offense. All right. Let's take let's stay on the back end but go outside a little bit more. Let's take a look at Trey Hawkins, the third cornerback, six foot three, 195 pounds, a Texas product down in Temple, Texas. Actually, another JUCO attended Trinity Valley. I think everybody's very familiar with that. Um, and you know, a guy who played last year, 77 tackles, five tackles for loss, six pass deflections, and a forced fumble. So a uh, you know, a, a really good stat line last year. And obviously that body type, you know, is is he playing outside or is he playing a little more hybrid position for ODU? Uh, he's playing outside. And, okay. Yeah. And watching the tape, he was a lot better covering the, the quick and intermediate stuff than he was some of the deep stuff. Um, he When he drives on a route, that's when he's at his best. Um, when, when, when he's having to turn and run, that's when you can potentially get some stuff behind him. Um, he can get fooled with a double move and beat deep because again, he likes to drive on routes. He's going to, he's going to bite on those double moves from time to time and get beat deep. Uh, he has good quickness, um, but only above average top end speed. He's not, not an elite speedster. Um, so he really relies on that quickness and, and that ability to drive on routes to to really impact his play. Did they have any video of him playing like a press coverage, or was he always playing off? Or he would they would mix it up. Um, okay, and and he he was decent in press, but um, again, it's it's kind of that that second phase that that he wasn't as great at. All right, I always ask that because I see, you know, him being potentially their best cornerback is who he gets matched up against, right? And, yeah. you know, you think about somebody like Dwayne or Jaden, probably a little bit quicker. But when I think of someone like Caleb Smith, Caleb a little more strong. Caleb does have a little quickness, but he's one of those guys a lot of players would not want to make a press on because Caleb has that strength to essentially shed the press and Caleb's got enough speed to get by you and get down the field quick. So it'd be very interesting to see how and if they match up. All right, let's flip it back down to the uh, defensive line. Um, I know you had some choice words about the defensive line in general, about, you know, that essentially kind of rough to look at, but let's talk about that. And then Marcus Haynes, um, one of the defensive ends, a six foot four, two hundred forty from Bowie, Maryland. Originally a two star, went to Fork Union back in twenty seventeen is when he came out. Um, what does Haynes look like on tape? Yeah, he's definitely their most balanced player. They usually he's he's on the opposite the uh, they'll use a stand up end kind of like Barno did uh, last year uh, okay. on one side. He's on the opposite. He's got his hand in the dirt. Um, he's more of a true you know defensive end. Um, from a technique standpoint, 
Um, he's bu- above average against the run. He's a decent pass rusher. Nothing to really write home about on that front. Um, but it's not, you know, a weakness. Um, he'll occasionally flash a big drive killing play, uh, with, with some of his penetration, especially in the run game. Um, but is more consistent of a player in terms of his steady production than he is kind of a standout player. That's making a ton of those a game. Got it. And, and last year he killed a was their leader in sacks at five and a half. So not a big number. The team itself didn't have a lot of sacks, didn't have a lot of turnovers. So Brian, you've kind of already mentioned it. They, they have a stand up in um, what sort of defense are they in? And what are some of the things that we should see from them on Friday night? Yeah, it's um, kind of similar to, to what we saw last year for the Hokies. It's a four-two-five. They got to stand up in. Um, they mix in a significant amount of zone with some man man concepts. They don't blitz a ton. Um, they will get aggressive on kind of third and medium and third and long, but they're, they're, it's usually in situations. It's not something where they're you would call them an aggressive defense. Um, but they do have good pursuit both in the run game um, and the intermediate passing game, getting to those, uh, you know, guys making plays after the catch. Uh, they don't really get enough pass rush. And I know I've already talked about that for some of the, the double moves or slow developing routes. Um, so that can be risky um, when opposing offenses are good with those type of concepts. They are super undisciplined and prone to hurting themselves with penalties and miscues. Uh, this is a very undisciplined defense. Uh, they will give you first downs. They will give you first downs for stupid stuff. They will give you first downs for procedural stuff. Um, they will give you first downs because for whatever reason, even in man coverage, a cornerback will run with a tight end running a wheel instead of sticking with the Z receiver. Like it's, it's shit like that constantly. Um, they shoot themselves in the foot. That results in some big plays. And you end up in a situation where, you know, you're playing from behind a lot. And they were playing from behind a lot last season, especially in the first, what, six to seven games of, of that year. Very true. Now, going through some of this tape, did any of the Marshall tape come up on the defense? I did not watch Marshall. <laughs> okay. I had to ask. I know you're having to pick and find pieces of tape here and there and some tapes not readily available to us, so we move on. And what we'll move on to next, y'all, is going to be the Hokies keys. And what are the keys to this game? And if we want to see the Hokies with a big W, what's got to happen? And I'm going to start here, Brian, with turnovers. And when I look back last year with ODU, in their wins, in their six wins in 2021, their turnover margin was plus two. So, and it kind of went like this in their wins. So, basically, in two of the six wins, they won the margin. In one, they lost the margin. Three were even. And against these six wins, they only had one team that was 500 or better, and that was Middle Tennessee State. And that game is one of the ones they won the margin on, and they still only won that game by a touchdown, 24-17. Okay. So, even on their wins – sloppiness is obvious on the offensive side of the ball. Um, you know, they, 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 they beat a Hampton team. They beat a couple three win teams and FI FIU was a one win team last year. 
So they got six wins last year, but they were not even close to pretty wins. Now, when you talk about their seven losses, they were negative 10 in turnover margin, which is just shitty because that's almost you're giving the other team the ball one and a half times a game. Did any of that show up on the tape? Uh, Yeah, a lot of it showed up on the tape, um, particularly when they were playing Western Kentucky, who got off to a pretty awful start themselves last year um, in that game. Um, The first half was a comedy of errors for that offense uh, against Western Kentucky, which did not have a very good defense. Um, There was a turnover. There was a ball put on the ground. There were just a lot of miscues across the board. And that resulted in them playing from behind significantly heading into halftime. Um, you know, they came out with a with a better plan, but there was still another turnover in the second half and they lost that margin. Um, I think it was three to three to one uh, in favor of Western Kentucky in that game. Yeah, so overall that's one of the big keys. If Hokies win the turnover battle, I this game's not even going to be closer than what we're predicting. If it's insane like it was when they had those three-to-ones or three-to-nothings last year, really, really ugly game. All right, another thing, and you've mentioned it in both sides of the ball earlier, it's about being undisciplined, about making miscues, and it's penalties. Last year, out of 131 teams, they were 102nd in penalty yards last year. That is bad. They were a team when they were at home where most teams do not have a higher penalty because you're playing at home. You usually get home calls, usually a little more under control. They averaged almost eight a game at home last year. And then their losses, 78 yards of penalties in the average for each of their seven losses. And even in the games they won, they still were averaging 60 yards. If this team steps on the field Friday and you tell me they're going to give eight penalties for 80 yards, and regardless of what side of the ball it's on, if you say you split it right down the middle, you're going to give us an extra 40 yards on offense, that's at least an extra two scores in my opinion. And if you do it 40 yards on defense, there's going to be a turnover in there somewhere because you're going to get dialed up with a ton of pressure. Yeah, I think you're right there, and I think that's that's the problem that they had last year. We'll see if that any of that has been cleaned up heading into this season. Um, you know, they have the same coordinator on defense. I don't know if that necessarily is speaking to their undisciplinedness or anything like that, but um, we'll see if that is something that has been remedied since that point. But yeah, they they were as as undisciplined as any team you will see last year, uh, especially on the defensive side of the ball. And I think those first two things, the first thing's obviously something the Hokies defense is um, looking at. The penalties are kind of all over the place, right? Offensive and defensive side. It can affect both parts of the game. But when you see things like that, my immediate thought is, even if you're keeping the same player or the same coordinators, you still have the same players, normally you do not see drastic turnarounds and turnovers and or penalties from one year to the next. Usually those are the very gradual. You go from, you know, the turnover margin being minus eight to, okay, now we're minus three. Now we're even. Now we're in the plus territory. Same with penalties. 
you don't go from the just about the bottom to above middle of the pack in one season because a lot of times the players you have are the who you're returning and it's a culture thing. So those two I cannot see. And the last thing we've talked about with the Hokies Keys is their passing defense. And I know you said two of their better players are on the back end, but you've mentioned all night, you've mentioned it up top, they don't have the pass rush. You can get double moves behind them. Even though they have a couple good players there, because of no pass rush, they can't get that done. And last year it showed. You know, they gave up 264 yards a game through the air. You know, they basically only forced seven interceptions in 13 games. And if you look at the Sun Belt last year, right? No, Conference USA last year. They were Conference USA last year. Conference USA, Sun Belt this year. Yep. How many of those offensive run some sort of high-level passing game? And to say you got seven? You got seven picks in one of the most pass-oriented leagues in a country? I mean, Western Kentucky will only run just because – you know, Just they, they want to do something different. Um, I think they had like 12 total rushes in the game I watched. So, I mean, they, they don't run, but they it's a lot of quick release stuff. And, um, you know, constantly, again, shooting themselves in the foot. They they don't do a good job getting after the, the quarterback. And while they have one or two guys that are really good in coverage, the – Areas elsewhere, they struggle. So it's it's kind of a mixed bag in the secondary. You got some really good players, some really high-level players, and then a couple of guys that are not very high-level. You mix that with no pass rush, that's a recipe for disaster. And when I say no pass rush, folks, 23 and a half sacks for 13 games last year, that's less than two a game. So on top of that, very little picks. It's why I looked at saying their pass defense is a key. And why is it a key? We have a guy like Grant Wells who did play them, who did not play his best game against them. But after that game against them, he cleaned up the rest of his seasons and did not have any more than two picks in any other game. So, you know, I we, we, we calculate all this. We start looking at the players. We look at our players, coaches and stuff like that. And, you know, lo and behold, it's time to predict this game, Brian. Yeah, and I'll lead off here. Um, you know, I think this is a statement game for the Brent Pry era. Um, and I think that the Hokies are focused. They are ready to prove some doubters wrong. Um, and I think they come out there and they handle business in Norfolk. I've got the Hokies winning 41-17. to 17. All right. Um I am exactly with you, actually. When we when we when we talked about this yesterday, we were like, Brian was like, I'm like, what's your what's your score, Brian? He's like 4117. I'm like, son of a bitch. He looked at me, I'm like, he's like, what? I'm like, it's exactly where I am. I'm at 4117 VT for a lot of the reasons. And I think a lot of those reasons are you say statement game. And when you started talking about Hayden Wolf and those players, they've got two good players, but don't get me wrong. If they get the ball to them, they're going to make a little noise. But knowing a guy's a statue, knowing what Brent Pry's going to do, he's going to have to get that ball released quicker than he ever has in his in his tenure as quarterback. Of I think that's a big piece. And I also think the upside of having the Grant Wells 
with us this year, I guarantee you Tyler Bowen walked in that room prep week and just said, let's look at it. Because they're really not changing a lot about this game. We've got some more weapons. We've got a better offensive line here. Wish we had Malachi Thomas because I think we would really run it down their throat. But I think the defense is going to dictate this game a lot. And I think the defense is going to be so dictating it that we're going to take some risks. And I think we're going to hit on a few risks early. And I think as you're hanging out over here in the man cave Friday night, I think fourth quarter will take a couple shots and uh, wrap the game up at 41-17. Yeah, and I mean, you talked about what Wells did against this defense last year um, when he was playing with Marshall. Wasn't his best game in terms of his interceptions, but he he had an efficient night um, in terms of – yardage and completion percentage he was 30 of 46 for 299 he had two touchdowns he threw two picks you'd like to see at least one of those taken off the board with 46 attempts right um so but you know one interception in 40 46 attempts not bad two uh, you know especially sometimes when when they happen not necessarily if they happen it's kind of you know what kind of shades one game you know one direction or another um, but he slung, he slung the ball all over the field. Um, just they, they couldn't finish a lot of drives uh, last year. And that was the big the big difference in, in that game being Marshall kind of walking away with it and having to get a touchdown in overtime to, to seal it. Exactly. So, again, we both predict Tech wins 41-17, take, to, take lay the eight and a half. Because um, I think with also with the turmoil going down there with the brand-new offensive coordinator – and, you know, obviously Ricky Ronnie knows Brent Pry's defense. And as bad as we want to say we're down, we're not deep, there are some talented players on that defense that will, I think, keep them under control. All right, Brian. So let's go one more segment here before we wrap up tonight, and it's what we are going to call big screeners. As it's been discussed on this program before, I have a man cave set up with three TVs. If you have three TVs or less, if you have less than three TVs, you're not doing it right in a man cave because there's no way you can actually pay attention. There's no way you can have fun on college football Saturdays. Now, Mr. Siegler, since he's purchased his home and he is currently sitting in his man cave as I am sitting in mine, he also has a three TV setup. Now, for Brian, because Brian's a little more tech than me, he has a couple big screens, and then he streams one off of his big monitors right there. So we're calling it big screeners because at some point, the games we discuss right here, non-tech games, are sort of our big screen games that are going to be on the big screens. And, Brian, I know you want me to lead this. Um, actually, tell everybody what your setup is just so they know. All right. So right here I've got a 65-incher. Uh, yeah, TCL, it's got the Roku in it. Um, I've got another, uh, 40 inch Roku above me here that can rotate from either straight above me or to a little caddy position next to the big, big one here. And then I've got a uh, 32 inch, uh, ultra wide monitor that I'm currently looking at you guys on. So, and, and, and that'll, that'll, that's my third screen. Uh, Curtis, let them know what you got. Well, I, I'm sitting here with a 60 inch and then two 32s above, 
and I am going to say this, Brian's little swivel monitor, I know I inspired that because both of the 32 inches in the man cave are on swivels. So if I'm ever eating at the, at the bar table back here and I want to pay attention to that game, I just slightly swivel it over here or during the season. And when we get that action in those Sunbelt games on Tuesday nights, that TV right there will be swiveled right here directly. So I do not miss. Now, when it comes to the big screeners, what's the game that I'm looking at? And we're kind of looking at this from a betting line. We used to do picks last year. When you're only doing one episode a week, you got to cut time because next week at this time we're recapping ODU and then prepping for BC. So what my big screener game this year or this week is, is I'm looking at the Georgia-Oregon game down in Atlanta, Chick-fil-A kickoff, 3.30 Saturday afternoon. And Georgia's coming off a massive national championship it you know it really was with you know an unbelievable sort of turn back to clunk clock style defense which a shit ton of those guys went to the NFL and i know it's georgia. more more than any team ever more than any team <laughs> ever and i know it's georgia and they have five and four star talent coming through the door and some of those guys played last year but also on the offensive side of the ball Stetson Bennett isn't exactly a fighter pilot quarterback he is a bus driver. And last year with guys like George Pickens and James Cook, it was easier for the bus driver to look like a home run, to look like a fighter pilot, to be honest. And when I look at this game, Oregon has a good offensive line. Dan Lanning, the Georgia defensive coordinator, is back out, is, has went out there to be a coach. They have a good number of returning starters. And when I originally saw this game, I'm like, my expectation is, I think Georgia probably is going to win the game, probably by somewhere between 8 and 10 points. When this line came open at 17 and a half, I, I, I just could, I, I'm trying to figure out, is is Vegas looking at how many people left? Yes, I know they're playing in Atlanta, and it's going to be 80-20 Georgia fans. But 17 and a half to lay on a 10-1 team last year that has a good offensive line, when the Georgia defense lost its best players on the offensive line and the second level. I can't see that. Georgia may win the game, but give me Oregon and give me the 17 and a half points because that's way too much to lay against a good team. Yeah, the 17 and a half line is is where I'm questioning. If you were saying Ten. I think if you if this is a money line question, you you pick Georgia. Yes. But when when you got that big of a line, 17 and a half is just too much. Um, I know there's a lot of differences with that Oregon team coming in. Obviously, their head coach is now down there in uh, in Miami. But this is still a solid talent roster that is still coming in there. I don't think it's going to be a runaway for for Georgia for the reasons you mentioned the the loss of talent. I think they definitely reload. I don't think we see a significant drop off, but we'll see enough of a drop off, especially week one, for them to not be able to to you know blow the doors blow the doors off of a very solid Oregon team. All right, that's my big screener. What's your big screener? You know, I I kind of roll this around a couple different ways. Um, but I ultimately landed on uh, Utah going to the swamp uh, and, and facing the Gators. Uh, I was I was leaning towards the backyard brawl. It's on a Thursday night. It, it's two it's two teams we play. 
It is two teams we play. But I don't think that is marquee enough of a matchup um, in the big picture um, for it to be a big screener. Uh, obviously, since they're on different nights, technically they're both going to be big screeners. But True. if I if I had to pick between the two, I would put Utah and Florida on there. And when I look at this game, um, you know, Utah is the the, the road favorite, um, and it's minus three. I'm gonna I'm gonna still take Utah here. I think Utah is probably the team to come out of the Pac-12. I think they are, based on their record, if they can get past this matchup, they are going to be a favorite team to make the college football playoff. So I like Utah here. Um, I think it's probably still a, a, a high one-score, low two-score game, but I think they're going to at least uh, cover that three. Yeah, I, um, I, I'm kind of with you on that. Utah returns a ton on – just for the team in general. And obviously the last thing we can remember from them last year is they kind of had a bitter taste in their mouth, losing that game to Ohio state in the Rose bowl, right? Lost by a field goal. And basically their secondary was absolutely decimated. Yep. Um, and they were having running backs play cornerback and safety. That's when you're in real problem, especially playing a team like Ohio state. And the other piece is we don't know what Florida is yet under Billy Nate. It's very early in the process. We've seen that team underperform for the last few years. So to say you have to open it now, luckily it is in the swamp. And to me, if I'm looking at this game and I'm looking through, I'm sort of looking through, you know, Vegas eyes. To say you're giving three points on the at home, well, every home team should always get three points, right? So they're basically and the, and the swamp is probably probably good for five. Yeah. So basically. <laughs> You know, they are really, really saying Utah is going to win this game by more. And, and you know, are we shocked if Florida plays out of them? I know Napier's a good coach. They've got talent. But it's one of those things where Kyle Willingham's defense, too, I think everybody's talking about the quarterback down at Florida, um, making some noise. And it's like you're, you're going to go against – yeah, they're going to be saying it's a Pac-12 defense. If you see the way Pac – Willingham coaches his defenses. They hit hard. They don't play like a Pac-12 defense. They don't. They yep. put, to me, they play more like an SEC defense. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of with you. It's going to be interesting watching those games. But it, it's all weekend in general, man. I mean, Thursday night, you mentioned backyard brawls at kick at seven. Sneaky, sneaky Purdue-Penn State. Penn State, first game without Brent Pry has to go to Jeff Brom. In that offense, I mean, they they could easily come out zero and one yeah. without blinking. Um, and then you know, get into Saturday, Arkansas, Cincinnati, and then the other game that we didn't put on a big screener, a because I can't figure that game out. Ohio State, Notre Dame on Saturday night, I can't because it's another big line, and it's kind of like, well, you know. Ohio State is a high-powered offense. It's in the shoe. It's a night game. It's all sort of good matchups. LSU, FSU, Sunday night. I mean, it's here. We get five straight days of college football, man. And I'll say this about the Notre Dame-Ohio State game, and the reason I didn't call that my big screener is because Ohio State's the heavy favorite, and Ohio State could still lose that game 
and still make the college football playoff. Whereas when you look at Utah, who is a kind of dark horse favorite to make the college football playoff, if they lose to Florida, especially they're if out. they lose badly to Florida, they're out. They're out. So that that's kind that. of the difference there. I get that 110%. All right, Brian, I know there's some things breaking. I'm not going to discuss them because I need to read into that more. Um, Jacob Yates, shout out. I see your message. We're not putting it up there, A, because if it's in 247, it could be behind a paywall. We also don't know if it's going to impact anything. We don't, know it, not. we don't know what it is. We're going to have to go literally read this and talk about this after we go off in just a second here. But if nothing else is breaking, Brian, that is going to wrap up this episode of the Boundary Corner Podcast. I am Curtis Wilson. I'm Brian Siegler. Visit our website, BoundaryCornerBT.com, to check out all of our episodes. While you're there, don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe for our YouTube account, um, which we have seen a significant bump in in the last few days. Um, And uh, definitely go... Spotify, Amazon, Apple Podcasts. Tomorrow, 2 p.m., check out Mr. Siegla on 910 Radio with AWOD. He's going to be doing a little quick breakdown for the folks here in Richmond. Um, Brian this week, maybe me next week, but one of us likely will be on 910 Radio giving a quick hokey breakdown. Shout out AWOD, Adam Epstein with 910, reaching out to us, giving us this opportunity. We feel really fortunate for this. It's pretty awesome um, because it's a radio show we've listened to for, or that spot in 910 we listened to for a long time. Yes, we have. Yes, we have. Looking forward to it. All right. As always, we let our buddy Jason Long, he plays us in, he plays us out. And this Saturday morning, check him out down at the Grandin Village Farmer's Market from 8 to 12. He's got some other upcoming dates, both in September and October. As we get closer to those dates, we will definitely tell you guys about them. Check out his music on Applefy, Spotify, his YouTube account, and his Facebook page all on his website. We thank you for listening. And as always, let's go. Hokies!